When thousands of objects were gathered into museums at the end of the 19th century, it was argued that they could provide object lessons in human culture. The object lesson was thought of as a tangible example of an abstract principle, but was also supposed to teach people how to act by showing the details of a bad situation. What lessons do African objects have for us in the 21st century? What can we learn from them about Africa's long relationship with Europe? What can they teach us about being and becoming human? These are some of the questions we want to return to in our conversations with scholars, curators, artists and activists. African Object Lessons is an opportunity to go deeper, to hear different perspectives and to think in, about and beyond the museum. My name is Benjamina Efodaze and I'm a Collections Assistant in Anthropology at MAA Cambridge. My name is Chris Wingfield and I'm an Associate Professor in the Arts of Africa at the Sainsbury Research Unit in Norwich. And today we're going to be talking to Paul Basu, who's a, a Professor of Anthropology at SOAS um, and has been re leading this really, really interesting project over the last few years, um, which is kind of goes by the name of Reentanglements. Uh, certainly on, on uh, that's the main website. So welcome, Paul. It's great to have you here. Hello. Hello. Very pleased to be here. Um, so I think it would be really interesting, um, Paul, to just start with, you know, that project, um, where it started and, and maybe if you could give us a bit of a background about how you kind of came up with the idea and, and, and how that started. It's a rather long story, uh, but I'll try and be brief. Um, so I've worked for many years in Sierra Leone um, as an anthropologist, and I've always been aware that the first anthropologist to work in Sierra Leone was a man called Northcote Thomas in the early 20th century. Um, and actually, in an earlier project, Reanimating Cultural Heritage, we set up a kind of um, a digital platform which linked lots of different Sierra Leonean collections, uh, both within Sierra Leone and in, and in UK and European collections. Um, and actually we um, provided access to Northcote Thomas's audio recordings in that, uh, which are held by the British Library, uh, audio recordings that he re uh, recorded in, in Sierra Leone in 1914 and 15. So I've always been aware of uh, Northcote Thomas um, and I actually planned to do a project which was going to retrace his journeys in Sierra Leone. Um, and, I, and I got a grant to do that. But unfortunately, that coincided with the Ebola crisis in Sierra Leone. Um, so having done some kind of preliminary work with Thomas's uh, kind of materials, um, what I decided to do was to actually start looking at his Nigerian tours. He actually uh, conducted three um, tours in, in, in Nigeria between 1909 and 1913 before heading to Sierra Leone. Um, he, was, he was Britain's first formally appointed government anthropologist. Um, so anyway, uh, I ended up doing a kind of pilot study in, in Nigeria based around these collections. And, uh, and then put together a, a, a more ambitious project, um, which looked at the entire kind of material that um, was assembled over, uh, over this kind of six year period between 1909 and 1915. And the collections are, are pretty massive, aren't they? They're huge and they're um, also very multimedia. Um, so there are material culture collections. Um, but there are also uh, a large number of photographs, something like seven and a half thousand photographs. Um, there are a lar large number of um, phonograph uh, wax cylinder audio recordings, uh, about 750 of those. 
Um, he collected uh, botanical specimens, thousands of botanical specimens, um, and so on. So there's a there's a vast amount of material dispersed in in different uh, institutions, mainly in the UK, but also some in in Nigeria in the National Museum in Lagos. Um, Yes, a huge body of material um, and uh, really what we've been able to do in the project really is just to touch, of course, the tip of the iceberg with this. I mean, it's a, it's a lifetime's work to really work through all of this remarkable material. So you mentioned that um, they're dispersed across different institutions in the UK. So what are some of these institutions and um, where they, so you, you have mentioned already the British Library uh, for the audio um, material. In terms of the material culture, where is it? Yes, so uh, the, ma the majority of the material culture is in the uh, Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology in Cambridge. There's, there's some in uh, at the Pitt Rivers Muse Museum. Uh, MAA also hold um, a set of the photograph albums and, um, uh, and, and thousands of loose photographs. Uh, negatives are mostly at the Royal Anthropological Institute. The botanical specimens are in Kew. The National Archives hold uh, another set of albums uh, and also a, a vast kind of correspondence relating to these because they were a formal, these this series of anthropological surveys that Thomas undertook were, were part of a formal uh, government initiative, colonial office initiative. Um, and then there's some photograph albums which we discovered really uh, during the project which uh, were unidentified previously uh, that were indeed a, a remarkable set of albums um, in, 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 from, the, from the surveys in, in Lagos. So yeah, a, lot, a large part of the project has been working with these different partner institutions um, uh, and that's been wonderful. It's been great to be able to actually connect up images, um, objects, sound recordings, field notes relating to singular events, as it were, that uh, Northcote Thomas kind of witnessed or engaged with. And for probably for the first time since the moment they were actually collected to, to, to re-articulate those. And that's been really quite, um, quite a special kind of thing, being able to actually, um, as it were, hear the drum that was collected and photographed and to place it back into that kind of context. Um, there's a lot of talk these days in anthropology about kind of multi-sensory anthropology. And um, you know, people talk of the innovation of this, but it's worth remembering that in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, anthropology was a remarkably innovative and experimental kind of uh, practice uh, that already engaged you know, with all of these different media. So Paul, I mean, these collections sound amazing. They're huge, um, but you know, they're all collected over a hundred years ago. And uh, and one of the questions of this podcast that we that we've kind of set ourselves is, you know, what lessons do these kind of African objects have for us in the twenty first century? So beyond telling us about you know what was involved in these in these expeditions, what what you know what do you feel the project has kind of brought out that we can we can learn from? Mm. Yeah, I mean. In some senses, the, the, the changing status of these objects themselves within museums and archival institutions and so on is itself, I think, quite a, an important lesson. You know, the fact that these things are not static, as it were, but their, their context changes and what they are, what they mean, what they do, what they afford, this term affordance is something that underpins this whole project, changes not only over time, but in a particular context. So 
this notion of affordance we've kind of operationalized within this project. So this is a very, uh, a, a kind of a deeply perspectival uh, kind of concept. So one could never think about what say a collection like this or a single object in this collection affords other than by asking affords for whom, affords what for whom, for what purpose, in what context, um, so it, 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 it kind of raises a whole set of lessons, as it were, about understanding the, the kind of plurality, as it were, of possibilities uh, that are latent, if you like, within uh, these collections, of course, but, but, but really any museum collection, frankly, whether it's an anthropological collection or, or, or not. I mean, this notion of what these things make possible in the present, in a changing present. They were clearly collected with a set of particular affordances or possibilities in mind, which were part of a kind of a colonial anthropological project in the early 20th century. Clearly, what possibilities they have today, if in a, if you like, in a decolonial kind of a context, uh, uh, are hugely different. Um, and so, it's I, I would I would say that's an important lesson uh, that. Um, that this project, these collections, um, but as I say, even more broadly, um, in museum collections of fraud. Another question that we we are looking at is, uh, what can they teach us, uh, these uh, these objects, what can they teach us about being and becoming human? And that's, you know, um, sort of a larger question about, you know, even the, the sort of the scope of this project, uh, some of the field work uh, that you have done uh, connecting uh, material to place and to people. Um, so can you speak uh, briefly about, you know, this idea of uh, being and becoming human and through these, uh, these objects that find themselves here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, let me pick up on what you've just said as part of my answer and then um, perhaps uh, there's something else as well. But yeah, I mean, in a very kind of practical sense, um, one of the affordances of these objects is all about human relationships. Um, so it's they act as a vehicle, as it were, for creating uh, relationships in the present. Um, the particular materials that we've been working with in the, in the project have not been, they're not star objects, they've not been on display um, since they were collected. Many of them have never really been out of stores They've never very rarely been played the audio material very 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 rarely seen some of the photographs until they've been kind of been digitized and recirculated through this project and it's a real privilege to really just follow these objects follow them back to the places in which they were collected or recorded or photographed um, and to connect or reconnect with people in those places um, a real privilege to be part of sharing that heritage back, you know, across the kind of uh, time, space, uh, but also the kind of political uh, entanglement of these objects and to think about how they can, you know, in some sense act in, in a kind of reparatory um, kind of role uh, today. But um, I think there's another kind of a broader thing um, as well, which is about you know, questioning, well, what is an African object, for instance? Um, many of the objects that we're looking at um, 
and indeed the recordings and the photographs too reflect this, you know, are not straightforwardly placeable, if you like, if that's a word, um, as, 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 as exclusively African objects. They're often also, you know, deeply European. Um, they, they, as it were, are kind of hybrid objects. Um, and this is something that I've, I've worked on over the years a great deal. Um, what I frame as the kind of in-betweenness of things, things that are not easily placed in one position or another, one place or another. Um, and um, so for me, this kind of um, ambiguity opens up what, what I recognize as a positive thing, which is about the diasporic condition, which I think is a human condition. The, the, it's a cosmopolitan worldview, which doesn't narrowly um, define things and people according to a very bounded, narrowly kind of, um, kind of territorialized kind of location or ethnicity and so on. Um, I rather think that there's a more hopeful view, uh, which is where we as people are not tethered to particular places or ethnicities or other forms of kind of essentialized identities. So I think that reflects my own, uh, you know, sense of identity. You know, I'm not uh, a, a singular of a singular ethnicity, if you like. Um, I've always been troubled, you know, I, I have an Indian heritage. Um, I've always been troubled by this, by this notion, and museums are quite guilty of this often, that um, you have to ask an Indian person, a Bengali person about a Bengali art object, for instance. They're the authority, They're, they have exclusive rights, as it were, or authority to talk about something. Um, as someone with Bengali heritage, uh, I wouldn't uh, suggest that that's uh, necessarily the case. So uh, I see a somewhat regressive trend in the notion that you have to be a particular, you know, ethnicity to talk about particular objects. There are different forms of expertise um, and it's about coming together and sharing our different perspectives um, and, um, and, and, and partaking in that more cosmopolitan view, I'd say. Thanks, Paul. I mean, that's that's a really kind of interesting kind of hopeful position on on, you know, the kind of cosmopolitan. I guess I guess what I'm interested in is that, you know, in many ways, you can't deny that within the museum, these these things have been kind of objectified um, and they have been located very often as African objects. Um, and in a way, the reason for, you know, calling the podcast African Object Lessons is to think about, you know, what does that actually mean? Um, and how is it that certain things have been, you know, a identified as objects? And I think, you know, the question that Benjamin asked about being and becoming human is partly about the way in which humans um, have been kind of objectified in certain kinds of ways. Um, and 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 you know, I guess there's something interesting about you know projects like this is possibly the degree to which they push against that or push back on that. Um, but that kind of that 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 objectness and that Africanness is, you know, I think still very much part of the way in which uh, museums organize um, and narrate the collections they have. Sure. I mean, part of being human is also being political and uh, so on. And um, I mean, the other reason we chose to work with this particular, you know, collection was because it was unequivocally entangled in a colonial project, you know. Um, so the, the, that, as it were, is, is not um, up for dispute. 
they were collected in the context of a series of um, surveys which were sponsored by West African governments, colonial governments. Um, and they, from the colonial government's point of view, had specific objectives, which was about, you know, um, serving colonial governance, trying to, you know, particularly in the context of in, indirect rule. Uh, whether they did that or not is, is, is debatable. They were also regarded as, uh, as, as failures, really, from that, that kind of perspective. But it's very important, I think, to recognise that, yes, they were part of a project which was creating a world which was divided up in this kind of a way. You know, in the, in the front of Thomas's, uh, particularly his Sierra Leone uh, reports, you see a map there where the, the country, as we, you know, see it now, um, is, is divided up into these kind of tribal groups or ethnic groups. Uh, and this notion that each group had a territory, had its language, had its material culture, tradition, and so on. This is an invention of a colonial way of, of, of looking at the world. Um, and of course, it's one that has been internalized um, and you know, gives birth to a form of tribalism, um, which of course has uh, resulted in all kinds of awful things, you know. Um, so, in some senses, the, this focus on the notion of the in-betweenness of things is an attempt to undo some of that, uh, you know, to unlearn the tribalization of, of these kinds of um, materials. I mean, this is reflected in uh, physical type photographs, you know, Northcote Thomas was working at a time where anthropology embraced the social and cultural, but also the physical and physical anthropology. And this notion of trying to map difference, not only linguistically or in terms of material culture traditions and so on, but actually in the physical being of people. And, um, you know, soon after these things in the early 1920s, there's some correspondence from Thomas and he's acknowledging that, you know, you can't tell anything from these photographs. They're effectively, you know, the effort that went in, there's thousands of these physical type photographs. They were pointless, you know, this was, a, this was an imagined thing, you know. And again, if you look at human history, of course, it's absurd to think of these kinds of differences in this kind of um, a way, you know. Do we have any um, information on how Thomas uh, related to the people he was uh, effectively studying? Um, so, you know, producing these sounds, producing these images, um, how did he uh, do it uh, in terms of, uh, you know, encountering people? It's difficult to get um, a kind of a direct view on that. Uh, what one can find is other people's comments about him and how he relates to local people. And that's usually from colonial uh, administrators and officials and it's usually a disparaging comment, and it's usually a comment such as that he's actually very close to people, uncomfortably for the colonial authorities. You know, um, it also comes out in some of his reports, um, he, um, he didn't have a good relationship at all with the colonial authorities, particularly in the West Africa, in, in Southern Nigeria, as it was, and in Sierra Leone. Um, he had little time for the colonial bureaucracy and the rules and so on. Um, and in his kind of, particularly in his unofficial reports, the one, well, they were official, but they were not published um, to the colonial office or to the colonial governments. 
he's often championing um, the, uh, the local people, local ways of doing things. Um, he has much greater sympathy, as it were, for understanding that. Um, you could say that had he been listened to um, some of the kind of, you know, failures of colonial governance uh, could have been avoided. Um, you know, there's, there's the case that comes to mind is his view about um, the Ezenri, for instance. The Ezenri was like a spiritual head of the Igbo people. And um, the colonial government in southern Nigeria had a problem insofar as part of these Igbo cosmology, um, there were certain taboos. One of those taboos was about twin birth, for instance. Twins were at that time um, within the Igbo cosmology um, often uh, left to, to die effectively, infanticide. Um, and so from the colonial authorities' point of view, this couldn't be tolerated. This was murder effectively. And so they wished to um, outlaw the, 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 the practice. Um, and Thomas did some work, for instance. He'd, he, he appears to have been quite close to the Ezenry, um, this, this hugely important figure. He spent quite a long time in Enri. Um, and he was trying to explain to the colonial authorities that they needed to respect his authority because he was the only one who could ritually, um, as it were, reverse this taboo. Um, and, to, 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 and, and he suggests you work with that, you work with the Ezenri, you, you manage it at the ritual level rather than impressing some kind of colonial law on things. And of course, his view was dismissed by the colonial authorities who, 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 who thought they knew better and thought that the Ezenri had no power whatsoever. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of an example just to show you that he, he, he was being, as it were, what a good anthropologist. He was trying to understand the society from, from its own logics and so on. Um, and um, in many cases throughout his life, he basically falls foul of, 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 of European and particularly British um, pedantic um, laws and rules and, um, uh, uh, and red tape. Uh, he was forever kind of falling foul of that. And um, effectively, it brought his career to an end. I get the impression, Paul, that, you know, these tours that, that Northcote Thomas was engaged in, um, I mean, for nothing else, there must have been an awful lot of kit um, that was moved around Nigeria at that time, um, and quite a lot of other people kind of involved in kind of working with Thomas, enabling these things, doing translation, setting up meetings with people. I mean, is there much that we know about that, or has the figure of Thomas come to sort of dominate the whole story, really, I suppose? Uh, yeah, and, and inevitably Thomas uh, emerges uh, as, you know, everything was filtered through Thomas, as it were, but you're absolutely right. Um, he, um, he, he, he was very reliant on translators and assistants and carriers and, 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 and all of these, uh, this infrastructure. Um, one of the most interesting ways, and, and he does name, he does name, for instance, some of his translators. Um, he, he, he published volumes of uh, stories and sayings and things like this. And he acknowledges the, 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 the names of the translators in, in some of those volumes. But um, particularly in the photography, one, one finds this, as it were, what I kind of termed the kind of peripheral presences. So usually at the, the edge of frame, framing was often not very kind of um, precise. 
using the kind of equipment that he was using. And then you begin to see some of the kind of infrastructure, the local assistants and so on that were around him. Um, and um, there's some in particular physical type portraits where you have this figure of John, uh, John Osagbo, who was uh, a, young, a young man who assisted him in his first tour. And we actually have a letter uh, where he asks, at the end of that first tour, he asks the colonial authorities to keep him on a retainer. He, he expresses what an amazing guy he was um, and that he should be trained in photography. Um, so in the exhibition, the re-entanglements exhibition that we're uh, shortly opening in Cambridge, um, we, we're, we're using some West African storytellers to, to voice, to give voice to some of the figures that we see in the photographs, for instance, and John from his peripheral presence, you know, in, the, in, in, in a number of these uh, photographic frames is one of those. Um, so, so John, as it were, tells his, his, his story. Um, so, so yes, uh, there was another uh, man, Corporal Nimahan. Um, yeah, and again, that's in the, the exhibition. There's a, a kind of twin photograph. We have a portrait, one of the few portraits of Thomas in all of these materials, standing, posing for the camera in front of a bush. And then the next frame is, is what I think is Corporal Nimahan uh, standing in the position. So I, my assumption is, is that Nimahan took the photograph of Thomas, Thomas took the photograph of Nimahan. So, you, you know, you can infer this um, where it's not explicitly stated, um, but for sure he was not alone. Many of the botanical collections were um, made by his assistants. Uh, we, know, we know that. This is so fascinating and um, I'm wondering if uh, during field work, if you had an opportunity to sort of trace the descendants of uh, some of these people whose name uh, you are aware of from Thomas's uh, uh, work and reports. In one of the broader senses, this project has been about acknowledging the coloniality of all of these collections, including, of course, where, where they are, where they're housed, who has access to them. Um, and also the types, the, for instance, with the photography, the, the, the genres of photography used, and as I say, this kind of physical type photography in particular is, is um, deeply problematic. Um, you know, a lot of people have written about this, Lizzie Edwards and so on, about the objectifying nature of this gaze, you know, reducing people to specimens of types. Um, but what uh, what also happened was that as well as, uh, you know, do, performing that kind of anthropology, that kind of coloniality, Thomas was making notes of people's names a lot of the time. So and we know where the photographs were taken through reconstructing these journeys. So that, again, affords this possibility of going back with the photographs to those communities or the descendants of the people that were photographed and um, trying to trace their, their descendants. And uh, indeed, that's been one of the most uh, remarkable and rewarding and privileged kind of parts of the field work, being able to go to a particular place um, and indeed to uh, connect with the descendants. Um, and often that's not only people who are, of course, in, in those same places today. Of course, people have moved around. People are in the UK or in uh, the States, wherever the descendants of those people. There was one case um, um, where we, we, what we quite often do is set up these kind of uh, impromptu exhibitions 
where we literally kind of hang hang photographs on on, on a string and so on and have a kind of public kind of display of uh, of them um and um we were in nebo uh in anambra state in nigeria and um uh, doing this and um some time later, a week or two later, I received uh, an email from someone in a woman in in Chicago, um, and their um, one of the family members in Nebo had taken a photograph uh, on their phone of um, of their ancestor, uh, and then sent it on the family WhatsApp group, and um, and then the next thing we have is someone from Chicago contacting us, um, and you know celebrating the, 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 that link. So I think it's important to not, again, fall into this trap of thinking, um, you know, everywhere else has moved on, but everything's very static in Africa. Um, people, you know, are moving or in diasporas, uh, you know, cosmopolitan, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this again, isn't reflected in a lot of kind of museum um, kind of, repatriation thinking if you like which again thinks in very static terms of there's a singular place in which things belong uh, that their ancestors are still there kind of thing or the, the descendants rather are still in those places people move around people are, are very grateful that these materials can be digitized and are mobile and, and and accessible in different kinds of ways. You mentioned the exhibition a little bit earlier um, that, that you're working on at the moment. I know Benjamin is also involved in that and I've had a kind of a bit of a hand. Um, I mean, one of the taglines of this podcast is in, about and beyond the museum. And it strikes me that your project, you know, started in, um, has been thinking a bit about, have gone beyond it in terms of these kind of, but you've actually come back to the museum now and you're kind of working on this exhibition. Um, and as well as, you know, the idea of object diasporas, which I think, you know, people associate with your work. One of the other things I associate with your work is the idea of exhibition experiment, um, exhibition experiments. And I wondered if you wanted to say something a little bit about, you know, the role that exhibition has had both in the project to date, but also in, you know, in, in what's happening at this point in terms of bringing things back together. So I mentioned that, um, you know, we work with the concept of affordance. So the project, actually, it's kind of got two titles. <laughs> one is one is reentanglements, as you mentioned earlier, Chris, and the other is museum affordances. And so uh, there's a, a broader set of questions that we're looking at through this particular, albeit very expansive set of collections and archives. Um, and so what we're looking at is, you know, what does the museum make possible, okay, today? Um, and, and, and we break that down. We think about what do the collections themselves afford? What does a photograph afford that um, material culture doesn't afford or a sound recording afford that a, a photograph doesn't afford? So we're thinking about those. Then we're thinking about a series of um, museum interventions, if you like. Um, and again, we've been trying to approach that in different ways. We've looked at this idea of returning objects to these originary places. Uh, that is a kind of a mode of intervention. We're, we've been exploring what I term diasporic kind of reconnections. So kind of linking to the fact that, you know, we shouldn't only be thinking in these particularly spatialized ways or at least territorialized, but these more fluid spatial kind of dynamics. And also um, creative interventions, so working with artists, thinking of this as a kind of a, a creative resource uh, for, for, for contemporary art, uh, particularly for, for Nigerian and Sierra Leone artists in this, in this context. 
But the, the other area of museum affordance we've looking, been looking at is, is, is the concept of exhibition, you know, where one can re-articulate those collections, but also bring in other, for other voices, other uh, kind of knowledges. And um, I think the key thing here is switching away from this notion that an exhibition is somewhere where you present your results, where you tell your story, um, which again is a, is, is, is a very common way of approaching exhibition still. You know, what, is your, what are your key messages that you want to get across here? And of course, there's a place for that. But um, I'd like to think of exhibition more as a, a space of debate, a space of encounter, a space for telling different stories, of in, for inviting audiences as well to tell their story in response to the material that they're, they're, they're presented uh, with in the, in the various displays. Um, I think, I think within the exhibition, we probably approach, we're trying to get away from this kind of ethnographic way of kind of presenting the, the, this material. And I suppose drawing on um, techniques that would perhaps be more familiar to a kind of contemporary art approach. They're more, uh, if you like, installations, a set of provocations working with these materials which um, I hope visitors will be provoked in different kinds of ways, provoked to think about um, the, the colonial in all of this and the decolonial, um, but to, to think a bit more deeply about um, the nature of these collections. Um, I mean, I've always been um, you know, drawn to this kind of notion of uh, the kind of the material metaphors, if you like. Um, and um, to me, the exhibition's really working with these, uh, these material metaphors. So just to give one example, we, um, we're displaying an, a, a pot. It's, it's, it's a, a pot that would have, would have been made to sit on an Olokan shrine in, um, in and around Benin City. And we know Thomas uh, uh, probably purchased this at a, um, a, a market in 1909. Um, an Olican pot has a figure of the, this deity on the front of it. And um, the object, the, the, the pot unfortunately got broken uh, then in transit. We think it was broken in transit from Nigeria to Cambridge to the museum where it still is. And then the museum uh, repaired it, but not particularly well. And thus it sat for a hundred years in this kind of uh, rather poor state. So as part of the project, we actually took it to pieces again and reassembled it using kind of contemporary uh, conservation techniques. But we were very careful, of course, to not hide the fact that it had been damaged. And um, we actually commissioned uh, a new olicum pot to be made, uh, not of um, clay, but of brass from a traditional brass caster in, uh, in Benin City. And so to me, this is quite a metaphor for, for, for this whole project in a way, the, the anthropological project then and our attempt now to, to think through that history. Um, so the something that was integral, whole, complete, was, was damaged, literally shattered through that colonial encounter. Um, it was then rather poorly uh, reconstructed in the museum in, in the UK. 
um, time passes, we revisit that, we deconstruct it, we're deconstructing the story of its kind of colonial entanglement um, and, um, and putting it back together again, um, mindful of the damage, not trying to hide the damage, but as a kind of a gesture of, of, of repair. Um, and so, you know, the, we've been thinking through the collections in this kind of a way, rather than just saying, you know, here's a pot collected in 1909, and then telling the story of uh, Olokan kind of um, worship and so on. Thank you so much, Professor Fulbasi. This has been so interesting uh, to get a sense of the sort of uh, the preparative work that went into uh, this project uh, and some of the uh, encounters you had uh, during field work. Um, we are very much looking forward to the exhibition and to the uh, engagement of the, of the audience. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. This podcast was introduced and presented by Dr. Chris Wingfield and Benjamina Efodazi. Our guest, Professor Paul Basu, is Professor of Anthropology and Sociology at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. He is the curator of Reentanglements, Colonial Collections in the Colonial Times, an exhibition that focuses on the work and collection of Northcott Thomas, the first government anthropologist to be appointed by the British Colonial Office in 1909 to conduct anthropological surveys in Sierra Leone and Nigeria.